Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. There's no way you can take away the reality that we are right now shaping the climate for 100,000 years to come. Science and environmental reporter Andrew Revkin has been writing about climate change since the 1980s, including 21 years with the New York Times. So what are some things he's learned in those three-plus decades? Science and history give you a very powerful sense that many aspects of what's playing out right now seem to be an implicit part of the human journey. But as New Yorker writer Elizabeth Colbert knows, writing about climate's place in that journey can be a challenge. It is ubiquitous, but very hard to pin down. It's being caused by everyone and everything. It's sort of everything and and, and nothing. And so finding the narrative is, is very, very difficult. Conversations with Climate Storytellers, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. For writers and reporters who cover the climate change beat, getting to the story can be a challenge. Climate change is, on some level, it's the worst story ever. Elizabeth Colbert is author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, and covers climate and other stories for The New Yorker. She was joined at a recent Climate One event by another journalist, David Roberts, formerly with Grist and now covering climate for Vox. The very first professional interview I ever did in my journalistic career was Elizabeth Colbert. We'll hear their stories later in the program. First, host Greg Dalton talks to Andrew Revkin, senior reporter for climate and related issues at ProPublica. Revkin spent 21 years writing for the New York Times, most recently through his Dot Earth blog. His new book is called Weather, an Illustrated History, From Cloud Atlases to Climate Change. Well, Andy Revkin, welcome to Climate One. It's great to be here. So in your book, you write about some things that were surprising to you that you didn't know before. And one of them is that it was a woman who first documented the potential of carbon dioxide to warm the planet. So tell us about her. Yeah, Eunice Foote kind of emerged from the murk of the literature I guess around 2011, there were a couple of people who found older documents that showed that um, actually it was an early AAAS meeting, American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in Albany, where her work was presented. There's still some debate about whether women were or were not allowed to present their own work. Uh, The the, uh, thought was that she wasn't allowed to do it herself. And so her work was presented, and she did these basic experiments with glass jars filled with different gases and thermometers. And uh, she wrote in this paper that uh, an atmosphere with more carbon dioxide would create a warmer climate on the Earth. This is about three years before Tyndall, this Irish, much more prominent scientist, who published some much more sophisticated instrument-driven analysis that showed more specifically, the greenhouse property of gases. But she's the first person that is known to have actually stated CO2 is going to make the planet warmer. But the guy got famous and got more credit for it. Yep. Yep. There's a, there's a there's breaking news. <laughs> yeah, shocking. Uh, what yeah. were some of the other interesting stories, whether it's a Chinese person who first identified climate? What were some of the interesting things you uncovered in the book? Well, when I uh, was asked to write a book about it, sort of 100 moments in the history of weather and, and climate, We early on, my wife also worked with me on it, uh, decided to make it about our relationship with the elements. It's not just sort of like the worst storm, the biggest, there, there is some of that stuff. There is the, the biggest hailstorm. <laughs> There's the hottest temperature. Uh, but it's mostly about this idea of our relationship with weather and climate. So that meant we uh, could put in like the age of sail. When, you know, when, when was the wind first harvested? When were we harvesting energy from the wind? And and then it turned out, and I didn't know this, 
In uh, the 1880s, there was a guy in Cleveland, Charles Brush, who was kind of the Thomas Edison of Cleveland. He invented the dynamo, one of the mechanical mechanisms for getting electricity from, from physical motion. And he had a giant wind turbine in his backyard that towers above the skyline that was like 150 feet high, built of wood that was generating electricity for his house. This is in the late 1800s. And over in Scotland, around the same time, there was another tinkerer who did the same thing on a much smaller scale. So that's in the book, along with you know the rising insights about climate warming gases um, and uh, the early history of the atmosphere. How do you begin a book on the history of our relationship with weather and climate? Well, I figured, well, we'll take it right back to what do we know about how Earth got an atmosphere? You can't have weather or climate without an atmosphere. And that, that turns out to be still pretty murky, too. 4.56 billion years ago, there's not a lot of evidence left, <laughs> except in these tiny crystals of zircon from Australia, the oldest rock in the world, um, that give you some hints about the climate was the atmosphere was like. There was a stretch when it rained for a million years. That was mind-boggling <laughs> yeah. when I heard that, yeah. Yeah, and the oceans, you know, Filled were one result. Yeah. Uh, it was basically outgassing water vapor, you know, as the planet was coalescing. And um, And how do you end a book about our relationship with climate, well, I decided there's no way you can take away the reality that we are right now shaping the climate for 100,000 years to come. The question is how much sea level rise, how much warming, not if. And it's a durable imprint. Geoengineering, even if you come up with a technology to pull CO2 back out of the atmosphere or if you do the sunshade thing, which is also in the book, you still have this imprint of our... <laughs> us in the atmosphere and climate system and oceans that will go on for thousands of years. So the last entry in the book of 100 Milestones is the climate of the year 102,018, which is 100,000 years from now. And the answer, of course, is it's whatever we want it to be. So humans as a geological force shaping something on a time scale we've never yeah. shaped things before. Yeah, which has been my beat for a long time. You know, I I was on the this, the Anthropocene Working Group for uh, starting in 2010 for six years. And because of a goofy line I threw into my first global warming book back in 1992, which posited at that time, I said, you know, we're in a post-Holocene geological age of our own making, and perhaps geologists of the future will name this new period for its causative element for us. That was 1992. I, and those were just like tossed off words, the Holocene being this epoch since the end of the last ice age, 11,700 years ago. And then scientists actually ran the numbers. And when I said geologists of the future, I was thinking, you know, like the far future that was just 10 years later that actual earth scientists said that we are in the Anthropocene. This coming at us much age fast, of us. Yeah. Coming at us much faster than we anticipated. Well, we're upon an anniversary of a seminal moment in, in climate change. In the hot summer of 1988, James Hansen, the NASA scientist, went and testified on a steamy day before Congress. And that Front page story in the New York Times. Uh, you wrote a, a cover story in Discovery Magazine around that time. Take us back to that moment, which was really the dawn of public yeah. awareness of climate as a here and now issue. Yeah, I well, Jim's the main assertion that caught everyone's attention was the greenhouse effect has been detected and is changing our climate now. He was very much an outlier at that time. There were many other climate scientists who were more circumspect about whether the... Uh, crop had risen beyond the weeds. You know, this is the mm -hmm. uh, model everyone, there are many models for that question of how do you determine an underlying new force uh, amid a lot of variability. But he's, he posited it was there. And his his analyses from that point forward have, have held up pretty well. There's, you know, it, it was early days. There are many factors that have been added. and But the general picture of a human warmed world has solidified powerfully since then. And he's still at it, of course. He moved more into the... Um, Let's get something time. done mode right. from just measuring things. And I met him that same year. And I also, a week after his testimony, late June, and this was something that was already scheduled. It wasn't a result of his mm -hmm. testimony. I went to Toronto to what was called the first international conference on the changing atmosphere. It was about, uh, you know, uh, acid rain and other pollutants, but the core of it was about climate change. And it was the first meeting where policymakers who were there as well, the scientists like Steve Schneider and so many others, um, they had the first recommendations that we need to curb emissions starting in the year 2000. <laughs> that was the, the milestone they were looking for then. Um, and it set the stage for what would become the Rio Treaty 
of 92 and on and on and on. And it was weird, uh, you know, when I look back at the story that I wrote that year, it had all the same basic science about the issue with Sierra snowpack, mm -hmm. uh, rainfall changes, uh, had sea level rise in Miami, it had, uh, you know, hurricane. The, the things that weren't there yet were abrupt change. And uh, Arctic, the Arctic wasn't really in... Antarctica and Greenland, this, the idea of sea level rise from melting there was definitely in the mix that year, but not the Arctic wasn't in my story. And uh, that's interesting. You know, I went to the North Pole a little yeah. bit later. But the thing that really jarred me in looking back recently was when I finally, this year, I got finally got an eBay. On eBay, I found a paper copy of the magazine. I'd had, I'd had a scan of it for a long time, but that was only of the article. It wasn't of the advertising. And when I got the... Uh, physical copy of the magazine. I was sort of jarred to see my article on the front cover with sort of a familiar looking baking earth you know, diagram. And on the back cover was uh, this ad, what you see isn't what you get. Enriched flavor, low tar, a solution with merit, merit cigarettes. It did have the Surgeon General's warning. So this is 1988. You know, we knew, we knew the science. You know, this is that Exxon new thing. This is very humbling to look back. You know, I was a senior editor at this magazine. And I don't recall us doing a divestment push. I don't recall us as a staff saying, why are we running, uh, selling, you know, getting income from cigarette companies? A science magazine getting yeah. income yeah. from cigarettes, tobacco. Yeah. And it, but it, it's helped me um, get more comfortable with how, you know, what we think of as unacceptable or not unacceptable. Those things evolve over time on scales that are sometimes slow. I, I mean, I think back, how could I possibly have supported that? And I did. And not just me, you know, or 20 or so, yeah, mostly young journalists in that newsroom weren't sort of inflamed about that. So it, it just gives me a little bit more um, humility in thinking about our attitudes towards carbon-based, you know, advertising and the like now. It's an interesting thing to reflect on. And tobacco changed at some point. It really changed when it got reframed as a public health issue for bartenders and servers and, and right. restaurants and, and airplanes. It became you you can harm yourself, but not someone else. It shifted. Um, but how else do the the tobacco narrative and the and the oil narrative um, kind of parallel? Because there is there's a, some playbooks that oil has borrowed from tobacco. Oh, for sure. Um, before I was on the staff of the New York Times, there was a period in the early '90s when I was a freelance writer and I had written books and. I wrote an op-ed. was my first New York Times piece. was a, an op-ed article. It was during the Gulf War, when the um, wells were on fire, and I wrote this sort of little muse about, well, what if all the oil burned up? We'd really care about the Middle East anymore. That was the basic premise. But I was looking at the PDF of the page, the op-ed page, and right next to my op-ed about the uh, if the oil need wasn't there, we wouldn't even be in that war was one of those ExxonMobil ads that were on the New York Times op-ed page. Yes, we're part it, of this. And I had been doing some reporting on the uh, the character. There was a guy who was sort of the public relations and image guy, person for mobile oil, uh, Herb Schmertz, who's legendary in the world of marketing. He invented those ads to give mobile ExxonMobil a, uh, a space on the op-ed page by buying that space. For years they were there. D yeah, they for a couple a fixture, of decades. Yeah. yeah. Those subtle things that are just there, that are, it's it's the more overt stuff we pay attention to these days. But I think some of that subtle activity that sort of painted a nuanced picture about oil and the environment um, is important to remember also. The, writing the book, actually, in general, this book that we did on 100 Moments in Our Learning Curve on Climate, that and a lot of my reporting the last 20 years has reinforced the importance of thinking about the historical context when information emerges. Because hmm. the other place you see this is um, Svante Arrhenius, whose name is pretty well known to anyone who's studied environmental studies. He was the Swedish chemist who really ran the numbers for the first time. On This was in the late 1890s. The world was burning a lot of coal. I think it was 2 billion tons already a year at that point. And he's the first person who calculated that that would warm the climate, you know, substantially going forward. He's, that's his landmark. Uh, Eunice Foote and Tyndall kind of had the basic landscape, and he quantified it to a certain mm -hmm. extent. But in the book, the item on him, you know, he wrote a memoir or sort of a popular book in 1906, and he uh, he saw it as good. He was Swedish. It was right at the, right at the prime moment of the Industrial Revolution, you know, the golden, the, the late 1800s. And so for him, he said, 
By the influence of increasing percentage of carbonic acid in the atmosphere, that's CO2, we may hope to enjoy ages with more equable and better climates, especially as regards the colder regions of the Earth, Sweden. Ages when the Earth will bring forth much more abundant crops than at present for the benefit of rapidly propagating mankind. And he kind of sounds like Will Happer, the Princeton physicist who is one of Trump's possible science advisors and who sees CO2 as great. And, uh, you know, so much science has accrued since the late 1890s, pointing to these bigger ramifications. Uh, Arrhenius didn't know about sea level rise being in the mix and that kind of thing. One thing I've learned, if I've learned one, one of the big things I've learned in these 30 years is that the idea that we could have a sort of a simple binding instrument, top down approach has gone away. Uh, it was absolutely true in 1988. We had gone, we had these victories. The Clean Air Act got rid of the schmutz, you know, the sort of really concrete pollutants like sulfur and, and the nitrous oxide. They were being addressed, you know, through a, a regulatory approach. And the Montreal Protocol seemed miraculous. You know, we could even do it with an invisible gas with a future impact. So, And we all had this sort of hubristic uh, presumption that, well, if we could do it with CFCs, we could do it with CO2. And it basically, from from my standpoint, it took like 25 years to kind of realize, oh, CO2 is really different. <laughs> it's so fundamentally different. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with longtime New York Times reporter Andrew Revkin. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about how to find common ground with climate skeptics. If you go in there feeling you have to convince everyone there to worry to the same extent that you do about global warming as a path to progress on energy or resilience, you're not only hitting a wall, you're actually reinforcing the wall. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to senior reporter at ProPublica, Andrew Revkin, about his new book, Weather, an Illustrated History, and his three-decade career writing about climate change. Here's Greg. What are some of the stories that you've you've missed? And you said that social sciences were something that you feel yeah. like you got to too late. This oh came God. out of astronomy, physics, chemistry. But oh, yeah. Yeah, so I had that frame in mind, as I said early on. This, well, it's a pollution problem, right? So we'll do one of those things we did for pollution, a top-down thing, and we'll measure and punish. And So that was one. And I had to let go of that, along with others, as time passed. And you realized if something's that tied to energy needs, it's not so so easy to uh, regulate away. And the other, the second big learning was, and for me it came in 2006 when um, um, Al Gore's film had come out. The the uh, the right um, Senator Inhofe hadn't quite given his hoax speech yet. I think mm-hmm. that was two thousand seven, but it was mm-hmm. right in this. This issue was heating up in a big way, and there was an mm-hmm. editor at the Weekend Review section of the Times who said, "Hey, Andy, could you like look into this? What is what makes this issue so hot?" And that, I think that was uh, definitely the first time I interviewed a sociologist or a psychologist about uh, climate. So mm-hmm. I remember I started in nineteen eighty eight, and it took me until two thousand six to interview someone about the the climate in our heads, because people can be utterly dismissive of global warming, but for other reasons, be completely enthusiastic about renewable energy. Solutions, sure. Yeah, or about resilience, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you go into a community like Woodward County, Oklahoma, which famously was identified as the most skeptical county in America on global warming, but if you go in there feeling you have to convince everyone there to worry to the same extent that you do about global warming as a path to progress on energy or resilience, you're not only hitting a wall, you're actually reinforcing the wall. Because if you make it a climate-first argument, you're you're going into the cultural space where they will just, everyone stiffens and yells. And the, John Sutter, this great CNN journalist, who in 2015 was doing a series called Two Degrees ahead of the... Uh, Mm-hmm. A treaty uh, Paris talks. He went to Woodward County, Oklahoma. He did this the, the fantastic little three minute video because the first minute and a half is people in Woodward County, as you would expect, saying things like, Well, out here, Al Gore's name is like a cuss word. And this um, guy in a suit and tie works for an oil company says, You know, um, well, basically, God controls the environment. That's the first minute and a half. And the second minute and a half, the guy who says God controls the environment said, you know, we've covered half of our roof and solar panels, and we want to do the rest. And he actually took 
uh, Sutter to his home. He has them in his garage, you know. And but the re- here's the thing that people have a hard time getting their heads around on the, from the progressive side is the reason he wants to get off the grid is the same reason he would never vote for a Democrat. One of the things I've learned from people like like George Lakoff is that you know facts don't re- uh, reach people the way that that say emotions do, and um, emotions stay with people longer. In fact, I had. Uh, uh, electrical engineers say to me after one conversation, uh, stage conversation on Climate One, a week from now, people won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Feelings stay with us. And the climate right. conversation has been so intellectual and cerebral and detached sure. from emotions and attached detached from today. So I'm curious how you approach that. You know, there's lots of environmentalists who are kind of, you know, vitriolic and hyper emotional, but where is that that? balanced place of emotion and and intellect that is we're talking about serious stuff here we're talking about it's uh, emotions are an interesting thing you know the emotion of the hot content in a story or the hot content in a video presentation has a lot of power and so on something like puerto rico you know the devastation of puerto rico from hurricane maria is incredible the weak infrastructure the lack of social support all the Issues that set the stage for that were horrific already. And you had a bad storm, and that's bad. But I, I, I've been writing about hurricane patterns in the Caribbean. And, you know, in 2007, I wrote a story for The Times about a study in nature by the, one of the top people in the world who look at past patterns of storminess. And the headline was something like, uh, Strong Hurricanes Common in Past Cooler Periods. Hurricanes are complicated. They're one of the more complicated things. And that's one of these issues where more science between 1988, when I first wrote about hurricanes and a warming climate, and now has made the uh, a much more complicated picture, not a simpler picture. And, and the, so then if you want to, you can try to use the hot part of that story to push for climate action. Or if you had a very objective view of what were the causes of this disaster, the human and uh, energy and other disaster in Puerto Rico? Where do you go from here? Um, acting on greenhouse gases is, is somewhere in the mix, but it's not going to change Puerto Rico's vulnerability to hurricanes unless you have a more power, you know, better economy and better infrastructure and all those other things. And those you can work on right now. And, and that's this, one of these issues, the vulnerability reduction can be totally nonpartisan. And the energy, a better energy future for Puerto Rico and the United States, you can have an absolutely nonpartisan conversation around that as right. well. That, that, yeah, but that storm didn't reach the American heart the way Houston yeah. and Mi- Miami did. Well, so many other aspects of yeah. that. Right. You know, Yale has the Six Americas structure, which I'm sure you know very well, sure. from uh, from alarmed to concerned to disengaged, doubtful, and then the deniers. Um, are you alarmed or concerned about climate change? <laughs> In 2016, uh, two magazines asked me to write one essay. One of them was creative nonfiction, and one was issues in science and technology, the magazine of the National Academy of Sciences. And they wanted me to write an essay reflecting on decades of mm-hmm. learning. And part of what I asked myself was, am I worried? What, what is my view of this phenomenon after 30 years? And I've developed a, what I call kind of an agnostic version of the serenity prayer, mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, give me the strength to, uh, I can never remember the details, but it's like, n- no. Except the th- uh, change the things, the courage to change the things right. I can. Uh, the patience to accept the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. And science gives you the capacity to know the difference, you know, but it also definitely science and history uh, give you a very powerful sense that um, there's many aspects of what's playing out right now that seem to be an implicit part of the human journey. Now, Tim Morton, Timothy Morton, who is an amazing... uh, He's a professor of English at Rice University, but he's really a philosopher, an ecological philosopher. And he he came up with this concept in 2008 that he calls hyper-objects that simply have dimensions that are, are that we keep misperceiving. And again, after 30 years of writing about global warming, I looked at this and went, oh, yeah, this I get that. Uh, we're living in that. And he, in, in an essay in High Country News, he wrote, um, it reminds him of the scene in The Empire Strikes Back where... Han Solo, they're escaping from, you know, the battle, and they go into this asteroid field, and they dive into a cave, 
and and then they were the cave. There's like an earthquake, and they they're escaping the cave, and he suddenly realizes this is not a cave. They're in the gut of a giant worm. Right. You, you know, so you know, are we in the gut of a giant worm, or are we are we in what we think is a cave? That you know, this issue of the the, the scope of this thing, and um, is is something I think hasn't been fully grasped. And and when you so do I'll that, take that to say you're concerned, not alarmed. Yeah, no. Well, I, here's the deal: when you when you run the numbers on all that stuff, and you look at the diversity of human experience and, and reactions, you look at our psychology. I get a feeling of relief, in the sense that there are aspects of this that are, are that are emergent realities. There's aspects of this that I and others can work on, and that takes it away from what had been the frame for a long time, which was a war. You know, this is a crisis. We need to solve the crisis. And and then you go forward. You go forward, and not with some faux expectation. You're solving a problem, and that can be okay. If you're just joining us, my guest at Climate One is uh, Andy Revkin, co-author of the new book Weather and Illustrated History. One of the obstacles to progress in climate is people don't feel what's called agency. The idea that does my action matter? Right. What can I do that matters on something that's so huge? I interview a lot of powerful people running states companies, countries, they all feel humbled in the scale of this challenge. So what do you say about human agency, the, the impact of human action? Does it matter? How do you measure the, the impact? Well, one th- big shift I made, I think starting around 2013, that was the year I wrote this series of eight or nine tweets saying, you know, path to a sustainable world, focus on capacities, traits more than numbers. And and the 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 traits were things like uh, resilience and um, um, communicative uh, transparency, uh, and um, it was bend, stretch, reach, teach, uh, <laughs> reveal, reflect, rejoice, repeat. You know that's the songwriter in me. I haven't done a song, <laughs> but but it, and and when you start to think about this again, this, if the scale is bigger than a problem as we knew it, if it's more like the war on poverty, or uh, Mm-hmm. then you have to think of it in a new way. It involves normalization. You know, we we didn't have an EPA until 1970 because we didn't think that the environment was a problem that rose to the level of needing a normalized approach to solving environmental problems. And now we have EPA. We didn't have, a, we didn't have most government agencies that we know of today as norms didn't exist, you know, in 1940 or 50 or 60. And those were emergent needs that we are now addressing in a consistent, sustained way, even, you know, with some of the recent issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, and that means that everyone on the planet can play a role in boosting resilience and building a policy at the local or the watershed level on how to deal with storms more effectively on energy uh, in the Hudson Valley uh, our community, there are people who are working really hard and trying to identify sources of where could you cut our environmental, our energy footprint? What would that look like? How can we um, make our community more adaptive to uh, uh, solar, or that kind of thing? Um, so we're, that's what keeps me waking up optimistic. You know, I usually go, go to bed kind of sapped each day, <laughs> but I almost always wake up pumped up because I hear another example of um, it's a very asymmetrical potential to make differences that sometimes feel incremental initially, but that can really make a change. Uh, and we do, the one thing that we do need more of is just basic support and investment for in science, you know, science to observe and understand this planet. And also to make, if you really want more uh, affordable electric cars, uh, it's important to keep in mind that everything in, in a Tesla came from the cold, the space race and the cold war. Every single thing in that car I mean, maybe there's one or two and, things. Yeah, from the space to cell phones to the car. Yeah, came yeah. came from basic science. In, in those cases, you could say, oh, well, it was the Cold War. But, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone says, well, can we do this <laughs> without a Cold War? Can you build the in- imperative to have uh, basic science be more a normalized part of our a bigger chunk of our budget and that kind of thing? And it's still an open question. But so with that, and but also with the understanding that science isn't, isn't going to solve problems without a values set that identifies those problems, we're not going to get there either. And there was a moment that really influenced me. It was at the Vatican. You know, here I am, a Jewish science writer. <laughs> and 2014, I spent a week at the Vatican at this meeting on sustainable humanity. The, mm. the best thing was the title, Sustainable Humanity, Sustainable Nature, Our Responsibility. 
there were Nobel Prize winners there and um, guys in black robes and um, <laughs> an Argentinian labor rights worker who was a friend of the Pope, a young guy. And, and it was a week of cogitation on existential risks and responses and carbon taxes and stuff. And at the end of the week, I, I was sitting with Walter Monk, who's one of my favorite scientists. And he's a very, he's a quant, you know, he's a, uh, he's a physical oceanographer. He, among other things, he kind of helped tip the balance of World War II by, by working out wave forecasting models for beach landings. Mm. So, you know, amazing, monumental figure. And I said to him, Walter, so how are we going to get through this century? You know, you've been at this meeting for a week, and what do you think? And I, I kind of figured he'd say, um, you know, fusion or geoengineering or something. And he sat back and he said, uh, it'll take a miracle of love and unselfishness. Mm. And it uh, blew my mind mm. because he, among other things, he was willing to say we don't know, essentially, and that values shape our decisions, not science is vital because it lays out the basic landscape, including the blurry parts. And uh, But it's your values and your instincts, you know, not just your highfalutin values. Sometimes it's just your instincts and the shape of your primal brain that shape what you do or don't do. And... Um, I think that's an important. That was an important transition for me too. You know, having grown up as a science writer, I, I came to the values stuff late. Carl Safina is another very values-driven um, uh, scholar, a marine conservationist who's gotten very focused on how we treat animals, that kind of thing. And well, it gets to a change of consciousness. It was really interesting that Christiana Figueres, who shepherded the Paris Climate Accord, credited Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, a, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, for helping her kind of guide her through the calmness and the the minefield yeah. of, of shepherding 190-something countries. And without that, that mindfulness helped her have the poise to to pursue that task and I'm increasingly coming to that. We need a change of consciousness because trying to tackle this at the same problem that's created the old Einstein quote, we haven't been making much progress as you've been writing about right. for 30 years. We need a change of consciousness so that, you know, uh, what was it? Love and unselfishness? A miracle, miracle of love and unselfishness is what he said. He's on to something. I need a miracle every day. Greg Dalton has been talking to veteran climate journalist Andrew Revkin, co-author of the new book, Weather, an illustrated history. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg asks Elizabeth Colbert and David Roberts what it's like to cover the climate story in a post-truth world. Unfortunately, I would say, and this is journalistically good and for civilization very bad, uh, it's becoming easier and easier to go places and have people say, this is climate change, we're looking at it. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Elizabeth Colbert's 2006 book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, was instrumental in creating and shaping Climate One. Her 2014 book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, won a Pulitzer Prize, and she continues to cover climate and other stories for The New Yorker. David Roberts earned a wide following covering climate for Grist. He eventually got so burned out that he walked away from the climate beat for a time. But he's back now writing some of the most incisive climate articles anywhere for Vox. Here's some of their conversation with host Greg Dalton. Elizabeth, let's begin. After the 2000 election, George W. Bush pulled the U.S. out of the Kyoto Climate Accord. Uh, you went to Greenland for the first time to learn how that might impact. And then you went to David Remnick, then the new editor of The New Yorker, to pitch him on, on the stories. That, yeah, pick it up there. Well, I, yeah, after um, George Bush was elected, if people can think back to that moment, it was still a moment where a lot of stories you read about climate were sort of he said, she said kind of stories. And it seemed like uh, I, I was really a naive at that point, And it seemed like there ought to be an answer to this question. Who's, who's saying, you know, what's true? And I should really go find it out. And, and so that's how this whole journey uh, to the Arctic and beyond uh, began. And then those stories became field notes from a catastrophe. And you were at that point kind of laying out still early, fairly early days. Most, it was before a lot of, before an inconvenient truth, before a lot of people had awakened to climate. And you were looking at what? Signs in the natural world that, hey, this is happening? Yeah. And it was, it was this is like uh, 2004. And, and that was right at the moment. In fact, the American Geophysical Union had just come out and said, uh, there's sort of, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's unequivocal evidence of climate change right now. The, the signal emerging from the noise 
Um, so it was just at that moment where the scientific community, there are a lot of, you know, people, uh, this crazy idea that the scientific community, you know, is just all jumped on this bandwagon. Absolutely not. People were really, really, a lot of scientists were very hesitant to say, you know, show me the evidence. But, but right around that moment, um, in 2003, 2004, a lot of uh, these data sets began to show very clear so signs uh, of climate change. And, and, and so a lot of the scientific organizations uh, came out with pretty important statements at that point. We all know now in retrospect how much good that did. And what, did, <laughs> <laughs> and what did you see actually up there in, in Greenland that, that was sort of like, what, what made you gasp? Well, one of the things I did in that particular moment is I went to the weather station on the top of uh, the ice sheet, which so you're standing on 10,000 feet of ice, basically. Um, and they talked about how, uh, how the ice had changed and how they had to be there earlier and earlier uh, in the season now because actually uh, it was melting out so badly it was getting really dangerous. And in fact, when I was there, you, know, you could see these rivers forming on the top of the ice sheet and it was getting pretty dangerous. So, uh, so it was a very vivid example of very, very dramatic change. David Roberts, around that time, 2003, uh, you were not in Greenland. You were unemployed and adrift in your life. Uh, so pick up your story there. <laughs> That's a much less romantic story than, than Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, I had a, a, a philosophy master's and a half of a philosophy PhD. And I had bailed out of school in academia and didn't know what the heck I was doing with my life. And saw a Craigslist ad for uh, an editorial assistant at a small web publication called Grist, uh, which at the time had four, I think, uh, full-time employees. And so I wrote a cover letter and said, hey, I have no experience in journalism, no, no particular interest uh, uh, or experience in environmentalism. However, I really want this job. <laughs> uh, and wrote a grammatically correct cover letter, which apparently is uh, a rarity, and uh, got, hired, got hired at Grist. Started in 2004, and was mostly doing editorial stuff and writing news blurbs <clears throat> back when that was a thing. And uh, so just sort of wormed my way very slowly but surely from the editorial side over into writing. Uh, eventually full-time. It was sort of, I say journalistically, I was raised by wolves. There were no, I was no, I was basically just on my own. So everything I learned about this subject matter and everything I learned about journalism, I learned on the fly, on my own, during those years. And here's uh, <laughs> one funny anecdote. It was around 2004, 2005, I started writing full-time. 2006, I decided, well, okay, I'm gonna be a writer, I'm gonna be a journalist which means like journalists interview people, right? So the very first professional interview I ever did in my journalistic career was Elizabeth Colbert ah. in the wake of her book. And did you know he was an untrained hack? <laughs> I'm sure she knew by I the think, end of it. I was going to say, I think that David doesn't realize all journalists learn on the fly. Yeah, I hate to disappoint <laughs> him. I hate to, yeah. Elizabeth, you say that one of the challenges of the climate story is the absence of many colorful characters. Why is that? Well, I mean, climate change is, on some level, it's the worst story ever. Um, <laughs> It is ubiquitous, but very hard to pin down. Uh, it's being caused by everyone and everything. Uh, and therefore, it's sort of everything and, and nothing. And so finding the narrative um, is, is very, very difficult. And unfortunately, I would say, and this is uh, journalistically good and for civilization very bad, uh, it's becoming easier and easier. You know, it's becoming easier and easier to go places and have people say, this is climate change, we're looking at it, uh, we're experiencing it. So, so from a journalistic perspective, actually, just in the you know, 12, 13 years that I've been doing this, uh, that part of it has really changed. But there are uh, oil companies, is it, there, there aren't any good villains, or is it, uh, you know, there's a lack of a, a villain with an intent to inflict harm, even people who are burning fossil fuels think they're providing jobs? Is, is it that the, pe the people who are doing solutions are kind of boring and process and not very sexy if you're doing something? 
Well, I mean, it's all of the above, and certainly there are villainous people, and you know, I can name names if you want. Um, <laughs> Just but, one, one or two. <laughs> uh, James Inhofe. You know, I mean, they're they're well known. You know, deniers, and then and there was you know the long Exxon Mobil campaign, and there's the Heartland Institute, and but they're just people sort of putting out falsehoods or propaganda or whatever. They're not even. Um, some of them are pretty smooth characters too. But you know, fundamentally, I think that the problem is even as bad as some people are and as misleading as some people are. And you know, the the problem is, you know, I we all put gas in our cars. So even if ExxonMobil is you know fostering a lot of misinformation, which they certainly have, uh, you know, there's a lot of soul searching that we all have to do. And so, you know, it's just definitely one of these situations where we've we've met the enemy and he is us. We're all complicit, and that's hard hard to deal with. Elizabeth Colbert, when you write a piece, first of all, you have to sell it to your editors. But are you thinking about informing people, telling a good story? Do you want to inspire action? Do you think about the impact? of your stories and what people will do with the information you give them? You know, of course you think about it, but I, I do want to be honest and say that's not my job in a way. And if journalists went around always um, thinking about what impact, you know, we, we I, I come out of a newspaper background. I worked at the New York Times for a long time. And, you know, our, our job was really tell it like it is. That, that was our job. And I, I still really... Hue to that. I'm sort of an old-fashioned journalist in that, and I I think that telling it like it is, and 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 sort of people can do with this information what they will. Um, that's still the role of, of journalism, even as journalism becomes more and more partisan and more and more, uh, you know, tribal. Um, I I guess I still believe in in something called that we used to call the truth, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I try to follow that and. I can't really know how it's going to impact people. Think of, you know, you would hope you'd have, you know, a million readers. I have no idea how many people are going to, going to react. So I try, I, if, you, if you are always thinking about that, you, you, you're not going to take the first step. In so you're not trying to solve the problem? I don't, that's, that's <coughs> way above my pay grade, solving <laughs> this problem. Yeah, I am trying to give people um, information that I hope you know, I do hope on some level will inspire people, you know, to, to think about it at the very least. Um, and, and I hope a certain number of them will be inspired to do something. Um, but I can't take responsibility for that because, as I say, it's just above my pay grade. David Roberts, your thoughts on the idea that more information will lead to more action? Uh, I don't think about and more information about climate change necessarily will. I guess, to me, the dichotomy between sort of straightforward objective journalist and activist leaves a lot of room in between for various and sundry roles and I don't know that I would put myself on either end of those but the way I sort of view it is at this point information about climate change has been dispersed lots of people out there have absorbed it and are ready to do something and to me what's lacking is uh, understandable stories about how we deal with it, like how, what are the solutions and, and, and what are the sort of political and social and economic problems we have to solve to get there. So I view myself as sort of arming people, like, like Elizabeth, I would be a terrible activist, just awful. So I, I view my role as sort of like arming people who do go out and do stuff with good information. And in that sense, I think people want to know, like, EVs, is that the transportation solution or is it some mix or like what, if I want to change transportation, what do I do? So I can give people information about the trends and the, and the, you know, the, the facts of that and, and help guide them. So it's somewhere between those poles, I guess. And how about the, the human brain though? There's a lot of interesting things. Part of my journey uh, in Climate One has been starting with science and these, these abstract systems. And the system that I think is perhaps most challenging is the one between our two ears, our, our cognition. And David Roberts, climate is uniquely, and, and, and Elizabeth Colbert touched on this earlier, climate is everywhere, yet it's nowhere. And it's, we are uniquely wired not to respond to this threat. If there's a, a person with a gun or a tiger, we are wired to respond to that immediate threat, and we are not wired to respond to climate change. Yeah, it might as well have been designed to evade our uh, filters, and that's true, and it's been hashed over to death at this point. I, I sort of think that 
hashed over to death for, for some people, but for a lot of people listening, it may not be so old hat. That's true. Well, uh, well, I mean, the place to start is just we've evolved with certain emotional and cognitive machinery that was designed for your village. It was designed for your immediate physical surroundings. And everything we know or think about in terms of more distant, bigger problems, we do by metaphor, basically, with you know, who's up, who's down. We, we, this is all George Lekoff, if you've read your George Lekoff. It's all m metaphorical, based on similarities to our physical experience. The problem with climate is that you've gone so far away from physical experience that we lack metaphors, we lack ways. So all our metaphors are kind of capturing bits and pieces of it, but there's almost, we just don't have the language or the conceptual apparatus to wrap our heads completely around it. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that aside from professionals, we don't really need to. Like if 90% of the American public can say climate change is a problem, politicians should do something about it. To me, that's like they know enough about climate change. The politicians are the ones who are supposed to know, like, you know. Elizabeth Colbert, you've written about facts don't change people's minds. We're not rational beings. If, if we were rational beings, you know, there's these red lights flashing in this building, people would run out. There's red lights flashing on our planet and we're not responding. We're going along business as usual. Well, we see, I mean, you know, the, the social science of the last, you know, couple decades has proved this, you know, just time and time again. And, it, and you know, it sort of gets back to what, what David's saying before, is, is not only is climate change, you know, not like some, you know, tiger coming to your village or, you know, even, our, even villages are actually late, very late in our evolutionary history. Um, but it actually is... I think the meta other metaphors that we search for or look for, which are other forms of, p of pollution problems that we've you know, solved, let's say, um, it even is different from that in the sense that uh, climate change is, is a cumulative problem. So when we went to solve you know, acid rain and we tried to get sulfur dioxide out of uh, smokestacks, uh, then the acid rain problem actually relatively quickly was, I don't want to say solved, but it was uh, mitigated. Whereas with climate change, the problem is it's a cumulative problem. And once you decide to solve it, the sense that, okay, that it's too late now, uh, I think people don't have a really hard time getting their heads around that. They think, when it's bad, when I look out the window and things are bad, then we'll solve it and we'll deal with it. But it, it doesn't work that way. And so we're up against not just you know, the mismatch with the tiger, uh, but the mismatch even with other problems that we have as a society faced, uh, environmental problems. Yeah, I'll put the same point more provocatively. I think the fact that climate change entered social consciousness in the guise of an environmental problem has done more to distort the way people think about it and the way we've tried to react to it than anything else. And you're, you are quite clear that you were not environmentalist, as we heard when you, when you got your first job, and you're not part of the environmental tribe, and you didn't, you're not part of that orthodoxy. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, certainly not trying to cast aspersions on environmentalists, God bless them, I just, I didn't come up through that, right? So I think there's sort of a, a pipeline now where people come up through college, they canvas for the Sierra Club, they learn certain, you know, there's certain ways of thinking that come along with that. And I just sort of came from outside that for good and bad and, and didn't think those ways. But I think like what Elizabeth said about it being cumulative, about it being so slow. And furthermore, it's not just physically different than those problems, but politically, once you put something as an environmental problem, there's this whole set of stereotypes that depend on it. it automatically yeah, yeah like everybody knows how to deal with environmentalists they're in pa they're in paragraph three environmentalists said no 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 <laughs> and then, you know like everybody just that's that's baked in we're talking with david roberts staff writer for vox and elizabeth colbert staff writer for the new yorker i'm greg dalton this is climate one elizabeth colbert do you ever censor yourself and not talk about climate because you'll think you'll be a downer at a social gathering or oh there goes <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, we know. Like, do you, do you ever, like, pull back and not go there because you just want people to like you or not? not? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, 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 well, I don't get invited to that many. So <laughs> <laughs> She's already um, got a reputation. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not really a calling card, the Debbie Downer problem. I, I don't, I, I think that's actually a, a bigger issue about do we talk about these things, you know? And, and people have written about this too, you know, do we actually even talk uh, about climate change, um, 
or is it something like you know you don't talk about you know death at a you know social gathering, um, uh, even though everyone is aware uh, that they're all going to die eventually. Um, so. I think that these are interesting questions and, 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 and important questions, and, and maybe if we were all talking about climate change, we'd actually be, be doing something, but it, it does have that sort of like, you know, don't talk about that kind of feel to it. David Roberts, you have two kids, 14 and 12. Um, how do you talk to them about climate? Do you, do they, are they sick of it? Are they bored of it? Do you, do you shelter them a little bit from how dark you think it is? Uh, you know, my family, we all share a morbid sense of humor, so, <laughs> but when I talk to them about it, the way I try to phrase it is, it's a big, all-encompassing problem, but the flip side of that is that you are so needed, and there are so many places where you are needed, and there are so many ways that you can be helpful, like, you can go into engineering, you can go into politics, wherever you go, you're needed to solve this problem. So in a sense, like, it's perverse to tell kids, like, at least you're going to have moral clarity, right? <laughs> at least you're not going to be like the U.S. in the 90s, where we're all peaceful and prosperous and just handle it really badly and flail around not knowing what to do. Like, you're going to know what to do, but you're going to have clarity throughout your life. Elizabeth Colbert, you have three sons. How do you think... How do you talk to them about it? How do you think it'll affect them? I, 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 I'm with David here. We, I definitely come from a family with a very morbid sense of humor. <laughs> so. uh, but I do have one son, actually, uh, who's studying atmospheric science. So I guess something got <laughs> through him. Greg Dalton has been talking about telling the climate story with New Yorker writer Elizabeth Colbert, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, and David Roberts, a staff writer at Vox, where he covers climate and related stories. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.